You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. It's Tuesday and here's someone that I often speak to on a Tuesday, but she's been on a selfless fact-finding mission in Europe for about four weeks. So I'm going to bring her into the fold again. It's Joanne Bainham from Sterling Private Wealth in Cape Town. Joanne, welcome back. I hope you're refreshed. And apart from the Sterling Wealth side of things, you're also a prolific presenter on Asset TV. And I see your tweets. The best way to start now is since you've been back, what have people been saying? And is that different to what they were saying before you went? I mean, I don't know the rhetoric has changed. I, I think... Everyone is talking about the Magnificent Seven in terms of the U.S. tech shares that have led the rally in 2023. So, so that story is very much the same story it was in June, July, August, etc. I think at the very much the margin, you are starting to see sort of energy shares do a little bit better relative to these tech companies. But that story has been well documented and everyone's talking about it. So that hasn't changed. I think what surprised me in interviewing fund managers is how many of them are suddenly bullish U.S. treasuries. And there seems to be the, the argument is it's almost impossible for us not to have a recession for the fact that Fed has raised rates this quickly and this much, and you should be buying U.S. treasuries to protect you and your portfolios offshore. And that's been quite a change from, you know, we think global equity is the place to be to I think you should be buying U.S. Treasury, some sort of tail risk in your portfolio. So that's been a bit of a change since I've got back. Before you go on to what else has changed, it's a very interesting one because, of course, we had one of the rating agencies. I can't remember whether it was Fitch or Moody's. Fitch. It was Fitch. Fitch. Yeah, Fitch yeah. Was, got busy with downgrading the U.S. credit rating from AAA to AA+. And the markets didn't, didn't take that very well. And I, I noticed the U.S. 10-year yield was something like 4.10%. It's down to just over 4 at the moment. But that's a change. And there's a split camp, I think, with investors, big investors. I noticed there was one hedge fund manager who was very, very bearish of the of, of the treasury market in the States. And I think it was Warren Buffett who actually was, was buying, buying the bonds. Anyway, a couple of luminaries were completely diametrically opposite. And I, I just wondered what your thoughts just on were. on that point, yeah. it's just, I, I think on the whole... Um, you know, one large hedge fund manager shorting and Buffett is going long. Yeah, I think it was extremely poor reporting because there's a, there's a world of difference between going long a 10-year yield, I mean, sorry, going short a 10-year yield and buying three-month or six-month paper. Hmm. I mean, they could not be, they're actually completely different asset classes to a large extent. One is sort of a quasi-money market asset and one is a long-term fixed income product. And I think they're very, very different concepts. So I, I, I was astounded how bad the reporting was on that because clearly Warren Buffett's got an enormous amount of cash. I, I can't remember the number now, but it's astronomically high in his funds. <laughs> yes. And he needs to park it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and so he's parking it every day in three- and six-month treasury bills. It's, he's not forming a view on the U.S. government by doing that because in three months they roll over. It, it's a very different argument to saying I'm giving my money to the U.S. treasury for 10 years. It, it's a, a totally different asset or a totally different way of expressing a view so when they say, you know, Buffett's doing this, and I can't remember the, the hedge fund manager's name now, it's escaped me, is, is shorting. I think it's very poor reporting. But, but you are right about one thing. There is massive divergence in the market as to those who want to be long U.S. treasuries and those who want to be short. Yes. And, and there's loads of conflicting views around it. The, the pro camp who says you should buy these assets is because they think a recession is inevitable and it will protect your portfolio in case the markets fall. That, that's view one. The other view is saying, well, actually, wait a minute, there's an enormous amount of issuance of debt coming to the market. 
Secondly, the Japanese seem to be changing their yield curve control and and reducing their need for buying U.S. Treasuries, and they are the largest largest country in the world buying of U.S. Treasuries, so they buy less. That's clearly a demand problem. And I think the other problem is that, you know, inflation, the genie is still at the bottle. I think people who think inflation is dead are going to be in for a bit of surprise the next couple of months. So, so there are lots of conflicting views. It's not a dead cert as to what's going to happen. Though I can tell you, if you are worried about a recession, historically, 10-year treasuries have helped you in that portfolio. They, has, they have assisted you regardless of the valuation argument. You've tended to make money. If, if recession conditions come because markets start pricing in rate cuts. Yeah, I think on the inflation side of things, you're absolutely right. It's fallen a little bit too precipitously, a little bit too quickly, and there should be a bounce back. In fact, I think we've got a CPI number coming out of the United States on Thursday, Thursday or Friday, Joanne. And I look at, again, diverging performances. You're talking about divergent views on the bond market, diverging inflation performances. Look at the UK. I think the Bank of, uh, Bank of England Governor Bailey has said food inflation is going to stay high for quite a long time. So the UK is in trouble. Uh, the United States, yeah, maybe because they're gas guzzlers and the oil price has uh, has been fairly fairly buoyant recently, that will influence uh, much quicker and more impactfully than in the UK, for example. So I do think we're going to get a tick up in US CPI over the next couple of months. So I would agree with you in US, UK, it's not a basket case, but it's not great what's going on over there. How about the China data? Have you been following that? Yeah, I've been looking at the Chinese data and it's been pretty dire. I mean, those import and export numbers were much worse than market expectations. I I know you've uh, chatted to people like Gail Daniels from 91 before, who's quite nonplussed about China, saying that she thinks growth rates, they will struggle, given that the housing market is probably overinflated and demand for housing has reduced over the last couple of years, particularly because the unemployment situation in China is not as good as it used to be. Well, it's got worse, let's put it that way. I can't remember the numbers now, but there are a huge percentage of people in 18 to 24-year-olds in China who can't get jobs. If you can't get a job, you're not going to buy a house, are you? It doesn't matter what interest rates the government throws at you. If you can't, you don't have a job, you're not going to buy. So I think the kind of growth rates we've seen out of China in the past are in a, for a bit of trouble. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be stocks you can make money out of. So I think we mustn't confuse economies and stock markets. But if you're, if you're buying commodities in South Africa today because you think the Chinese growth, mar- growth miracle will come back... I think you could be in a, for a bit of pain. But but remember, you don't just buy commodities for China, you also buy it for ESG. So so there are lots of different ways to look at the commodity market and the lack of supply that's gone into to commodities. But all I'm saying, if, you're, if, you're, if your book has been, oh, well, China's going to grow, therefore buy commodities, I think that's more difficult than it used to be. Yeah. And just on... Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I was, I was just... And that was a lot of information, but... No, I, no I it wasn't. No, it wasn't a lot of information. Don't, don't, I'm, I'm still compassmentous, so I did understand what you were saying. But I was just thinking, actually, because <laughs> I'm doing some scribbling here, and you said it was really poor reporting when we were talking about the bond markets and the three and the six month versus the, the 10 year or even the 30 year. And... It's the time of year, and I look at the markets every day, and I think, well, the S&P's hit a brick wall. You know what? It's August the 8th today, and I imagine when you were traversing Europe, it was pretty busy. People are away, aren't they? I mean, you were, you're a case in point. You were away. Yeah, I mean, look, Europe's always busy in, in June, July, August, because those are kind of the holiday months, right? Exactly. But I think you'd be surprised how many people are actually still watching the markets. I, I think there's still a lot of activity taking place. Even if you're in the Hamptons in the States, you're probably still looking at your Bloomberg screen every day. I think in the world we are in today, that even if you're away, you're still not away from the markets. So I don't think that's entirely true, that just because people are on holiday, the markets aren't being watched. They are. 
I know this has been a particularly difficult year for markets, particularly active managers. It's been a horrendous year for active managers, actually, if you put it bluntly, because the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq have massively outperformed because of a small number of shares. And active managers aren't going to put all their money into things like NVIDIA. So it's been, it's been a really tough market. So I, I can't imagine too many of them are relaxing at the beach unless they just bought tech shares and forgot about it. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at value managers, they've had a dreadful year again in 2023. Bond markets have lost you money in 2023. So, yes, I think people on holiday, but I still think they're keeping an eye on the markets. Yeah, everyone always keeps an eye on the markets because of the interconnected uh, world that sadly we live in. You can't get away like it used to be, sell in May and go away on holiday. So the, I think the point I was trying to make, and we got into, I got sidetracked by you, was that that poor reporting story, <laughs> that poor, as I always do, that poor reporting story about, uh, with, the, with the bond markets is because... There's junior journalists on the desk, and they're, they're not good enough. I honestly think this is a factor. I don't think journalists are tip-tapping away on their laptops and their tablets and, and everything else and sending articles while they're sunning themselves in the Hamptons or wherever they go, Florida, I don't know. No, I mean, that's probably a true comment, but, but it is quite frustrating when you read articles like that. And it's not just junior journalists. It's also investment strategists who make sweeping comments like that. I remember the guy's name. I think it's Bill Ackerman. You know, that's it's it. just... It's, it's a very, it's, it's like saying to somebody in South Africa, oh, my bond manager's overweight cash, which, you know, is backed by the South African government because it's RANDs, but he's shorting the long end of the bond market. You know, isn't that terribly schizophrenic? It's, it's not. <laughs> They're two completely different strategies. And so, therefore, I think even investment strategists have got it wrong. I don't think Buffett is saying I totally believe in the U.S. government by buying six-month T-bills or three-month T-bills. He's just saying I need to park cash. And we also know if he puts it into a money market account or he puts it in the bank, he'll get no yield. Yeah. Talking about no yield, yes. I don't know if you noticed, um, Moody's downgraded uh, regional banks in the US. I saw that, them. yes, I, yes. That was, that was um, last night or something. I mean, banks, uh, medium-sized banks like Bank of New York Mellon, for example. Yeah, and I think that's slightly worrying because I think what it's telling you is in as much as March, they decided, well, don't worry, you can hold these long-duration treasuries just don't tell anyone about it. And if we can hold it to maturity, you, you know, you still look fine on your balance sheet. But but the reality is when you've got an inverted yield curve in the US, which in plain English means, you know, the long end interest rates are lower than the short end interest rates, it's very difficult for banks to make money. So it's probably not surprising that Moody's are downgrading banks. But the bigger implication here is where does the new credit come from in the US economy if banks are struggling to lend money? And if they're being downgraded, they're going to struggle to lend money even more. And if the big banks also get downgraded by Moody's, these, these become big issues. Look, I think the big banks are very well capitalized and have grown their market share due to the smaller banks losing market share. But I do think at the, at the top level, banks are struggling to lend money at the moment. And they're struggling to lend money because they can't make money out of it. You know, what does that mean for the US economy and, and growth rates? And I think the other number I saw last week was that money supply numbers are, are actually going negative in the US. Historically, that's been pretty recessionary. So whilst everyone right now says, oh, what recession? Are you mad? It's not happening. Uh, a lot of the signs are, are telling you that things are getting worse. Yeah. Where do you stand? Soft landing, hard landing, no recession at all, overblown, the, the most anonymous recession so-called that anyone's ever seen because there isn't a recession, given the jobs data we've seen recently and GDP data from the States. What's your call on this one? Oh, it's, it's, I hate to be an economist here, but it's really hard to call because at the beginning of the year, it was such a dead cert it was going to happen and everybody's been wrong. And in hindsight, what, what we figured out we got wrong was that a number 
of U.S. consumers and companies had um, fixed their interest rates. So even though the Fed raised rates, if you were in a 30-year mortgage bond, from a cash flow perspective, you haven't felt it because you're still paying the same amount every month, even though interest rates have gone up. On top of that, we've had enormous fiscal spending by the U.S. government, explaining why the budget deficit's getting so much worse. That's been propping up the U.S. economy. And then the third factor, which I don't think people really talk about, but this kind of reshoring. So, you know, post-COVID, a lot of U.S. companies now are saying we don't want to be in China anymore. And that's partly why Chinese numbers are so bad. Bringing the investments back to America, that's also kept economic growth very strong. So you had a, a lot of good reasons why the recession's been averted. But somebody said something interesting the other day about risk. Risk is like energy. It cannot be created or destroyed. It just gets transferred. So somebody's holding the risk. And I think it's just a question of time before banks turn around and go, we're not lending money. I think that's when we're going to start seeing the risk, new growth going forward. So right now it's fine. So to answer your question in a very long-winded fashion, I think it's inevitable that we have a recession. It might only happen towards the tail end of this year or early next year. Do I think it will be mild or hard? I don't really know. I have no idea. And anyone who says they know what is lying. What I will say to you, which is slightly concerning for the next recession we're going to have, is historically when governments, when unemployment's risen, governments have stepped in and done lots of fiscal spending. That's what's happened historically, so it's counter-cyclical. This time around, we've had governments spending lots of money at the same time unemployment's been very low. What will the levers be the next recession? And are we going to go back to relying on monetary policy to save the day again? I don't know. But it does tell you that the odds are a recession going to be a little bit deeper than people are anticipating. But on top of all of this, and I think this is the thing that worries me more, is I think inflation remains a lot stickier because inflation is around ESG impact and inflation, you know, turning the economy green. It's around oil prices and lack of supply going into the oil markets. And I think wages have also had people have had enough on wages. They're saying we can't work anymore because in real terms we're going backwards. So I'm not convinced that monetary policy fixes the inflation story. I feel the same way about South Africa, by the way, but I feel the same way about the States. And relying on monetary policy to fix things, I think, could be a bit tricky the next time around. So, yes, I have no idea when the recession's coming, but but the odds are it's not going to be as shallow as people say it's going to be. Okay, well said. Where are you positioning your clients? <laughs> yeah, so What's where your I'm positioning my clients. Mm. What, what my strategy is at the moment, and it's been wrong for the first six months of the year, because... I actually think you want to be in value shares. You want to be in companies that will have strong normal growth of the long run. And I'm not talking about the next six to 12 months. I think we're going to get a world economy which will grow stronger because of fiscal spending by governments and by ESG kind of led investment spend, impact investing. And I think also the, the hope to try and reduce the Gini coefficient, so putting more money into people's pockets. These are all things that should help nominal growth on a three to five year plan. So I think the kind of cyclical value shares are where you want to be invested Companies are trading on relatively normal PE multiples, and let's call it, you know, 15 to 20 or 12 to 15, but not insane multiples like we've seen in the likes of NVIDIA and even likes of Apple. And 33 PE, when it hasn't had earnings for three years, you know, it the boggles the mind. So I think where well, we're investing our clients' money is in lots of short-term duration cash because offshore you're getting paid for it at the moment. You're getting 5% 5, 5 on some of these assets. That's not a bad return. And I think a lot of value shares will do quite nicely if inflation remains sticky as we think it's going to be. And, you know, growth's broadly strong. And then the, the, the last area we have been looking at emerging markets. You know, emerging markets, people have hated it for so long. And some of these companies are incredibly cheap. So, yeah, I, I like to buy things that are well-priced 
So if I'm completely wrong, hopefully I don't lose too much money. And that's kind of the way I look at it for clients. Joanne, thanks so much. I know you've got to dash off for another appointment, but thank you very much for your insight. And I'm going to carry on with the five o'clock shadow with all the boring day-to-day stuff from uh, South Africa and elsewhere. That was Joanne Bainham from Sterling Private Wealth. Okay, now Joanne's gone. We can have a look at the JSE today and the movement of the indices and some individual stocks and also some stock exchange news service news. It's been some, a couple of juicy numbers, actually. Hulamin came out with its six-month trading statement share price up 22% on the close, just below 22%. Nedbank came out with their numbers. They're talking about bad loans sort of hanging around a bit. Share price fairly muted at around about half a percent higher. And Quilter came out with its numbers and shot the lights out, 13.1% to the good. Okay, let's move on to the spot prices now. Let's start with the Rand, which is approaching 19 again. It was looking so good a little while back, and now, as I say, pushing the big number, 19. It's currently 18.97 against the US dollar. That's to do with a half a percent move by the US dollar against the euro. More of that in a moment. The British pound against the Rand is 24.15, and the euro rand is 2079 euro dollar 10945 and the british pound against the us dollar is 127.15, which is a pound that's fallen by around about a third of a percent against the greenback. Okay, on to commodities. Gold price is still in the doldrums, and the dollar doesn't help, of course. 19.27, down $6 per ounce. The platinum price is down 15 to $904 an ounce, and palladium also down $19 weaker, 1214 On to other commodities. The strong dollar is exerting an influence everywhere. Brent crude oil is down 0.4%, was over a percent weaker earlier on, but there seem to be tight supplies, and that's an even bigger influence than the strength of the US dollar. $84.98 at the moment, and West Texas crude, $81.33, which is down three quarters of a percent. Natural gas prices going in the other direction. They've been buoyant recently, up 1.8% to 2.77. Copper down 1.7%, silver down one6 and coal prices 1.7% weaker. Iron ore, uh, that's, uh, we'll have to wait for China tomorrow morning for that one. On to the all-important capital markets. The US 10-year Treasury yield has just broken back down through 4%, just though. 3.999% is that yield. It was 410, 4.10, 4.10% a couple of days ago. The South African 10-year, which has been behaving itself, is 10.215% on the close. As for S&P 500, suddenly getting hit, it was down about a half a percent 45 minutes ago, and it's now down 1.2% to 4,484. There's been a raft of downgrades of medium-sized banks from Moody's, the rating agency, and also there was some bad data from China this morning. We're used to that now. But anyway, the market deciding it doesn't want to be around in the S&P, so down it goes. And Bitcoin, that's going in the opposite direction. It's 1.5% higher to 29,457. Let's have a look now at some of the movers on the JSE, and there's been some interesting ones. On the upside on the JSE today, Quilter, I mentioned that after their results, 13.1% higher. Roynet, not as glamorous, but up anyway, 2.8%. High prop, also 2.8% to the good. Motus, two and three quarters percent in the green. And Harmony, up two and a third percent. Downside, Omnia down 7.2%, Alphamin has shed 4.7%, Afrimat 4.1%, Northam's Platinum, that is 3.8% in the red, and Anglo-American Platinum coming in with a near 3% loss. What about the major indices? 
Well, obviously, with what's uh, going on with the share prices, it looks as though we're going to have a soggy day. Not too bad, I suppose. Uh, let me just refresh my screen because they look a little bit better than they should be. No, absolutely right. So let's start with the resources index of the local market, down 0.8%. Industrial shares down 04 Financials have come in with a 0.2% gain. They're the only green on my board. A top 40 index, 71,372, down 0.3%. And the all share, 76,870, down 0.2%. I'll be back tomorrow with more. That was the five o'clock shadow. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.